You're listening to the Naked Bible Podcast. To support this podcast, go to nakedbiblepodcast.com and click on the support link in the upper right-hand corner. If you're new to the podcast and Dr. Heiser's approach to the Bible, click on New Start Here at nakedbiblepodcast.com. Welcome to the Naked Bible Podcast, episode 330, The Exodus and John 3.5. I'm the layman, Trey Strickland, and he's the scholar, Dr. Michael Heiser. Hey, Mike, what's up? Well, believe it or not, we're going to be talking a little bit today about the Exodus. It's it's not very far removed from getting out of the book. I guess I just couldn't help myself, but I kind of like this topic. Yeah, we just can't seem to get away from the Exodus. It is your sweet <laughs> spot, so... Uh, we need an Exodus from, from Exodus is what right, we need. Right, but you, you do touch on it on a lot of different angles. So, I mean, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, anybody that's familiar with you, this is, this is kind of your sweet spot. So it's fine with me. Yeah. You know, and it's such a big, big deal, big event that it's not surprising that there's going to be things in the new Testament that connect back to it. And that's again, kind of what intrigues me about the topic. I mean, we're actually going to do a few more of these where, you know, the Exodus material has, plays some backdrop role uh, to a New Testament passage. But, so I thought I would, I would start in with this one. But yeah, you know, for, for those who got through the whole series on Exodus, you know, for you troopers out there, we're not going to lapse into biblical chronology <laughs> or anything like that. It's, it's not going to be anything like that. But the, the Exodus event itself and the way it's written about in the Old Testament actually has a little bit of a role, I think, uh, maybe a, maybe a, really a fundamental role to how we read John chapter three. So that's what we hope to accomplish today. Hey, anytime we can connect dots from the New Testament to the Old Testament, I'm all about it. Yeah, yeah, that's I, you know, and that is you know the sweet spot. I think you know that's that's something I really enjoy. So let's just jump in here. I mean, John three is just so familiar. If, if there's a New Testament chapter that pretty much any Christian or most Christians would know a verse out of, of course, it's going to be John 3.16. And chances are high that people have memorized, you know, that or some other verse in John, you know, chapter three. I mean, you get these really familiar phrases, you know, you must be born again, or you must be born from above. I mean, John, like John 3.3. So, you know, you get that, you get John 3.16, the whole story, you know, Jesus, his conversation with Nicodemus is, is referenced a lot you know, in church and in preaching. It's just a really familiar passage. But, the, you know, the chapter also gives you some headaches. And we're going to sort of fixate on one of those headaches today, and that's verse 5, where it says, you know, Jesus, you know, says to Nicodemus, we have the line here, you know, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And that has sort of drifted traditionally, you know, to discussions about, well, this must be a reference to baptism. And so baptism has something to do with salvation or something like that because it mentions water. Well, we don't really do tradition here. <laughs> you know, I, I'd rather find some, uh, some explicable context uh, from the Old Testament that really helps us become more intelligent readers of the New Testament. And so this is going to be one of those episodes as well, again, starting with you know, we'll, we'll do more of these, but again, John chapter three is really familiar. Of course, the Exodus is quite familiar as well. So I'm going to read 
Um, I'll just start reading in John 3 just so that you sort of get the flavor of it again. Maybe I'll just read through John 3, 17 or something like that where we have you know sort of the, the climactic statement. And then we'll jump into what we're going to do with this. So reading from ESV, we have, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things, and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, and whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. You know, so again, this is real familiar. That's about half the chapter. For the sake of our purposes today, again, I think that's good. It's a good way to sort of get it in your head uh, so that we can start thinking about, you know, really some of the things that, that I'll introduce uh, today. My, as I've done in these, in these last several topical episodes, I'm going to have a touch point resource uh, for people who really want to get into the real nuts and bolts here a lot deeper. Um, and if you're a McLaught newsletter subscriber at the bottom of every issue, there's a, a link to an archive where we put these articles, you know, we can't just throw them up on the internet, but we put the articles there so that people can get them if, if you're interested in reading them. And so this article is going to be in there. The, the author is Timothy Foster. And the title of the article is John 3.5, subtitle, Redefining the People of God. And this is from the Bulletin for Biblical Research, volume 27, number 3. It's 2017, and it's about 10 pages long, 351 to 360. So this is an article I came across, you know, roughly when it came out, because I usually, you know, look at BBR, I get BBR in the mail, um, and I thought was was just really you know, not only interesting and intriguing, but well done. And again, it had a a good deal of explanatory power, uh, which again, I, I like things that, that link us back to the Old Testament because lo and behold, if Jesus is talking to a Pharisee and says, how can you be a teacher of Israel and not know this stuff? He must be referring, okay, 
to that Pharisee's presumed knowledge of the Old Testament. And that alone, if you really think about it, that alone disqualifies baptism. Because baptism hasn't even been instituted yet. And you can't say, well, that's Jewish proselyte baptism. Well, again, if that's what we're talking about, if that sort of thing is what we're talking about, then the referent would be John the Baptist. And of course, he's pointing to Jesus and telling people to follow Jesus. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He doesn't say, great, you've been baptized now, and now your sins are gone. Now go follow this guy. It's not what he says. So we, we need sort of a fundamental reorientation, those who would link baptism as having some sort of saving, salvific value uh, to eternal life based on this verse and based on previous baptism, you know, baptism prior to the Christian institution. Uh, it, it really leaves a lot to be desired uh, when, when these arguments are, are attempted. And, and they're very old. You know, this has been around for, for quite some time, obviously. You know, and, you know, you find it in the church fathers and such, but are the church fathers looking at Second Temple literature? Are they looking at their Old Testament? Okay, or are they just sort of guessing? You know, I mean, you, you get a little bit of both, you know, when you, when you get into the church fathers. But I want to suggest something today, again, using Foster's article that he suggests. And it, again, it has a lot of explanatory power, and I think you're, you're going to find it very interesting and, and appreciate it. So Foster's article opens this way. This is the abstract. Uh, he writes, Jesus' demand that Nicodemus must be born again does not concern personal regeneration. Just that one line, you can tell he's in different territory already. He's basically saying this line about you must be born again has nothing to do with personal regeneration. Rather, it points to a shift in the locus of salvation. You know, the, in other words, the object of, of faith now. What, what, what is that thing that, we, that is inseparably connected to everlasting life with the true God, okay? It shifts from a focus on Israel to the Messiah in the coming age. Let me just read that sentence again. Jesus' demand that Nicodemus must be born again does not concern personal regeneration like the individual. Rather, it points to a shift in the locus of salvation from Israel to the Messiah in the coming age. Let me just stop there. This is why his subtitle is Redefining the People of God. Because in the old, you know, when Jesus shows up, you know, before he starts preaching in his ministry and we get the work of Jesus accomplished, before all that, there was this notion that to be rightly related to the true God, again, think believing loyalty here, but the believing loyalty was tied to a covenant or a series of covenants, but really, you know, the let's just say the Sinai covenant or the Abrahamic covenant, one of those two. It was tied to a covenant that, that defined the people of God as this entity called Israel. Okay, you, if you were in the community, you had access to the truth, the truth about the true God. You had to believe that the, the, this God was who he said he was, that he had voluntarily, you know, out of love, entered into a covenant relationship with you, you know, this people. You had to believe that. And then the way you lived and behaved would illustrate that belief and also would help you perform the function of being a kingdom of priests and a holy people to, to the rest of the world. Okay, But the, the, the focus of all that was this entity, this family, this, you know, this, 
this people, this community called Israel. That's where you know the whole salvation thing sort of operated from. That was the hub. Okay, that was that was the locus. That was the center. That was you, you can't think about salvation without thinking Israel. Okay, in the Old Testament, just you know you, you can't separate that out. And so what Foster is going to suggest is what Jesus is really getting at here is thinking of salvation as being a member of this people, and it's God's people known as Israel, is insufficient now that the Messiah is here. We have to think differently about the mechanism, the hub, the locus, you know, the catalyst, you know, whatever word helps here. You, we have to think differently about how salvation is, is now offered and accomplished it's not through, again, believing loyalty to you know this God in in the context of this people, but rather this God now has come you know as Messiah incarnate, and of course this is before Jesus goes to the cross and whatnot, but but he's still he himself is the linchpin now of salvation. It is not the community of Israel. So this is, again, why Foster, his subtitle is about redefining the people of God. Jesus is trying to teach Nicodemus that, okay, it's not adequate to think of salvation only in terms of Israel, being an Israelite. And you might have the right faith. You might have believing loyalty. But now, now that I'm here, now that the Messiah is here, it shifts to him. So you're, it's like salvation's identity was in a nation, a, a people before and now it's in the person of Jesus. That's, a, that's, a, that's an important shift in thinking. So back to the abstract again. The numerous references, Foster says, in the pericope to the exodus, you know, the, the exodus event, which is leaving Egypt, you know, deliverance from Egypt and through the Red Sea and then you know, taking the people to Sinai. That, that's what we would think of as the exodus, Okay. The numerous references in the pericope to the Exodus suggest that born of water alludes to the birth of Israel. Again, not the individual conversion, okay? It alludes to the birth of Israel at the Exodus. Jesus' demand to be born of water and spirit, in verse 5, points to the inadequacy in the coming age of belonging to national Israel and the ensuing need for those born into Israel to now be born of the Spirit, to be born again, okay? Or, you know, it, all, it also points, to, you know, for Jews like Nicodemus to be, you know, again, born again, that, that you know, Nicodemus is sincere, you know, he's, he, he knows, you know, his Torah and all this kind of stuff. He's an Israelite, all right? He's a Jew. But Jesus is saying, look, you, you have been born into that community and you know, basically, you're, I mean, you're, you've responded well, and we're having this conversation now. But you have to realize, Nicodemus, that you need to be born again. And what that means is you have to realize the inadequacy of being a member of Israel. And you've got to shift that focus of loyalty now to the Messiah. Okay? You, you need to be born from above, born again. You know, the, because what Jesus is doing, you know, here is, again— He's here to present the new covenant, which of course is coupled with the Spirit, the, the coming of the Spirit. All these things are going to are going to happen, and he's trying to orient Nicodemus's head, his thinking, you know, to 
you know, sort of start connecting these dots. It's not sufficient to just say I'm an Israelite. Okay, now we have to think in different terms. We're, we're, this is the age to come. It's the age of the Spirit, the new covenant, the Messiah. I'm here. So your thinking needs to change. You were, you were born into one. You're a member of one, but to, to be a member of, of, of the kingdom of God in the coming age, you have to be born again. Okay, you have to, again, shift your thinking here over to Messiah. So, and Foster, in his last sentence in the abstract, says, this approach resolves several difficulties and the passage better fits the wider context. So you know, in his article, he's going to lay out his case. Now, in, again, just by way of summary, it's, these are important things to think about as we go through here because you know, he's saying, look, this, the language here is not about an individual's conversion. I mean, every individual is going to have to make this shift. We, you know, that's obvious. We're not denying that. and He's not denying that. But we, we, t- we typically interpret this language to be only about an individual's decision. And while that'll kind of get us where we need to go, again, that, that, that we have to recognize Jesus, uh, Jesus as Messiah, if you're sort of thinking in that mode, you can you can kind of stumble through other parts of the passage and get confused by the language and and wind up interpreting certain things poorly. And his his contention in this article is going to be John three five is one of those that it just doesn't get interpreted well. It 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 you know it basically turns into a mess. You know that that people make it talk about, make it you know, sound like it's talking about certain things when it's not, it's not talking about an individual's baptism. It's not talking about that. We have to set the language in the context of the Exodus event, and then we'll be able to see more clearly what it is talking about. So again, as, as he, you know, jumps into this, you know, he says at another, at another point, um, you know, pretty early in the article. And again, this is going to sound a little bit like the abstract, but it's worded a little bit differently. Uh, so I'm going to read it anyway, and then we'll we'll jump into his, you know, where he starts as far as, you know, talking about, you know, the more traditional views first, and, and you know, like what what are the problems there? But he says this, he says the phrase "No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit." John three five has generated numerous interpretations, with debates centered around the meaning of "born of water." If any consensus has emerged, it is that the passage is concerned with the soteriological question of the necessity of regeneration by the Spirit for salvation. This article will develop another interpretation of verse 5, which implies that throughout this discourse, Jesus is making an ecclesiological statement, that in the coming age, those who will inherit the kingdom are not those who are Jews by birth, but those who believe in him. So, again, if you if you approach it the way that Foster is going to argue, it, it, it's another one of these things. Again, Jesus is trying to not only to get Nicodemus from shifting to thinking about Israel to over to the Messiah, but when you do that, when the locus of salvation is not national Israel or it's not Torah, it's not you know whatever people imagine it to, to be associated with Israel, you know, because you know, again. On this podcast and what I write, I think it's pretty clear that, that Old Testament salvation was not by merit. You know, you, you didn't earn it by, by being a good Torah keeper. It's believing loyalty. But what, what, what Foster is angling for here, again, just in his general readership, is that, look, when, when Jesus has this conversation with Nicodemus, if Nicodemus is getting it, if the lights are going off in his head, he's going to realize that, wait a minute, 
if salvation isn't connected to national Israel and our Torah and our lineage, our genealogy, our, our descendants, you know, from Abraham and all, if it's not linked to that, then that means anybody can have it. And you know, isn't that where John 3.16 is going to wind up? For God so loved Israel? No. It's for God so loved the world. Okay, something, that, that is a fundamental distinction for a guy like Nicodemus to hear. And it's not that the, the Old Testament, the Tanakh, okay? it's not that the Old Testament doesn't have Gentile inclusion. Okay, it does. But overwhelmingly, 99% of the Jews alive in Jesus' day in the first century, if you ask them about, you know, if you threw the question, what must I do to be saved? They would say, you need to be in Israel. You need to be a, a Jew. And again, again we, we can look at the Old Testament and say, well, that's, you know, that, okay, yeah, you know, you got to join the community, but it's still believing loyalty and, and all those things. You know, we, we can have that discussion. But again, for the average Jew of, of, of the day, they, they were almost incapable of discussing the concept of salvation apart from Israel. And what Jesus is saying is, look, you got to change that. Because I'm the Messiah for the whole world, not just Israel. And so this is where Foster's going in, in the article. And again, I mean, just look at, we're not even into it yet, but but look at how, look at just the simple wording, just the start of John 3.16, how that changes the game for somebody like Nicodemus. You're, you're only a few words into the verse, and the game has changed. The whole, everything's changed. You know, you because it it, 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 it hits you sort of with a thunderbolt to remember you know, the inclusion of the Gentile in the Abrahamic covenant to remember the language of Isaiah 66, you know, th these things that, that sort of got forgotten and drowned out in this, you know, obsession with, with the national entity known as Israel. And, you know, it's, I'm not saying that's a sinister thing. I mean, if, if you were, if you were a member of this community, of course, you're going to think on these terms, you know, again, because of your history and Abraham and the Exodus, all this kind of stuff. You, of course, you're going to think about this. But what Jesus wants is he wants a shift in thinking. If I could put it this way, he's bigger than the Exodus. He's bigger than Israel. He's bigger than Abraham. Okay. They are not, those things are not the reference points anymore. Now that I'm here, I am the reference point. And it's all nations. So what what uh, Foster proceeds to do in this is, is he goes through uh, you know some common academic interpretations of born of water that phrase like, and the first one's kind of obvious. You know he talks about baptism. Again, it's it's very common, but you know he and and he he quotes uh, Linda Belleville's article here, an, an article on John three five. Uh, which is short, and you know, Belleville has a nice critique of the baptism view of, of John three five. You know, in, in fact, Foster basically says, and he and he quotes Belleville for this, I guess, so he can, you know, he's not going to take the blame if anybody gets upset. But he says to interpret born of water as baptism is nonsensical because of verse ten. If you go to verse ten, Jesus answered him, "Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things?" And her point is. It's a little, I'll actually quote it. I'll, this is a line from Belleville's article. 
It is little short of ridiculous to imagine Jesus reprimanding Nicodemus for his failure to understand the necessity of a rite, a ritual, yet to be instituted. You know, if, 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 if the Christian church, if, if Christian tradition is correct in saying that John 3, 5 is about Christian baptism, Belleville's saying, do you realize how ridiculous that is? There was no Christian baptism. So how could the verse be about Christian baptism? It just makes zero sense. And again, I, I have to agree. I mean, I, I mean, I was there before running into Belleville's article. Um, you know, Belleville provides, you know, Foster says she provides, you know, four or five other reasons why the baptism reading just, just isn't possible, you know, given the context. But he talks about that because it's the most common view. And then he goes on to physical birth. In, in the evangelical community, I think it's, it's probably fair to say this, this might be the dominant view. You know, the, the, the baptismal view, you know, you're, you're going to get that discussed in Catholic circles and Lutheran circles, you know, Eastern Orthodox. And they all mean a little bit different, different things. They're not all, all speaking, not all using this, the, the same terminology in the same way. Again, we understand that here. But, you know, in, in sort of your mainline uh, denominations, you know, the baptism view is, is very prominent. And if you go over to like the evangelical, like the, you know, non-denominational churches, community churches, whatever, I think it's fair to say that the physical birth view is, is more prevalent there. And so Foster writes this, he says, while this view, again, the physical birth view, this is the idea of born of water means like the, the act of physical birth, you know, the water breaks, the woman has the baby. Okay. So he says, while this view preserves the context, it is not consistent with the way John uses figurative language, and it does not explain the rhetorical significance of Jesus establishing physical birth as a condition for entry into the kingdom of God. By the way, think about that. If physical birth was a condition for entry into the kingdom of God, if that, if this is if physical birth is actually what Jesus means here, what about aborted fetuses? You know, what about spontaneous abortion? You know, what about, you know, the, the, the contents of the womb that die before birth? Guess they're out of luck because of John 3, 5. And that, that, that's a good example of a question nobody asks, but really needs to be asked. If that is what the verse is about, then that is a very logical question. And, and I would add, uh, those are logical conclusions too. If Jesus is making physical birth a condition, except a man be born of water, except a man be physically born, and then born of the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You know, and, and Foster's saying, obviously he's, gonna, he's not at this position, neither am I. Again, for these reasons and others, but, you know, he continues on. He says, you know, it just doesn't explain the rhetorical significance of Jesus establishing physical birth as a condition for the entry of the kingdom of God. If, as others suppose, water is an allusion to amniotic fluid, again, the water breaking, then in the light of John 1.15 and 1 John 5, 6 through 8, we would expect him to use blood instead of water. And th those other verses, I mean, let, I'll just... Let me just um, go navigate to them, John 1, 15, so you kind of get, you know, what Foster is angling for here. It's actually, you know, that's a typo in, in Foster's article. It's actually John 1, 13. Let me see if I actually, yeah, it's 1, 13. It says this, 
Oh, let's go back into verse 12. That's the more familiar verse. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right, again, the authority to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Okay, and, and you get the same thing with, with 1 John. Let's go to 1 John 5. 1 John 5, 6 through 8. Again, the, these are these verses are textually, there's some textual issues here, but I'm going to read them you know, just as they are in the ESV. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. The Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth, so on and so forth. The Spirit and the water and the blood. So what Foster's saying here is, you know, if, if John 3, 5 is really supposed to refer to physical birth, you know, the amniotic fluid is the water. When, whenever, in, in the other places, when John uses this water language, he also uses blood, again, to, to sort of, you know, make clear the, the illusion that he's making. But he doesn't do it here. He doesn't include that. So Foster's like, that. that's not very consistent with what John does elsewhere. He continues and says, alternatively, if water is an allusion to semen, and I, I've read this view in, in commentaries, because if you're thinking physical birth, born of water, I've, I've seen commentators argue that the water is sort of a, you know, a euphemistic reference to semen, okay, because that involves the process of physical birth. So Foster says, alternatively, if water is an allusion to semen, then not only is this reference remarkably obscure, and that's being nice, but beget okay, would need to refer to the male agency. And when, when, when John uses this begetting language in, in John chapter 3, John would have to be referring to the male if John 3, 5, the water there is a reference to semen. So he would have to be you know, it would have to refer to the male agency, but Nicodemus's reference to a mother's womb suggests the feminine action. The feminine action of giving birth is instead what is in view. Okay, so what, what Foster's doing here in the article is he's saying, you know, if we think about this, there are some inconsistencies here. You know, first, we've got this really odd idea that, that to be eligible for, for everlasting life, you have to be physically born. Again, that's problematic. You also don't get John talking here the way he talks elsewhere when he brings up water. I mean, there's no reference to blood. And then if you're thinking it's semen, well, then that sort of changes what Nicodemus is thinking. Because when Nicodemus hears this, he thinks about the process of passing through his mother's birth canal. He's not thinking about the moment when his father inseminated his mother. So we, we've got we've got disconnects here with this view, and so you know Foster spends some time. You know, I'm just summarizing things here. Um, he spends some time, you know, critiquing that view. The third possibility that he goes through is that the language here of water and the spirit is an allusion to Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. Let me just read that to you. Ezekiel 36, 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you. You know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna back up here because the basically the wider context is is important here. I'm gonna read starting in verses in verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. 
And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, even though, or even when through you, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Okay, uh, what should be clicking off in your head right now is Pentecost. Okay, the, the, this this gathering of the nations, you know, when when the the, the new covenant, because this is Ezekiel thirty six is a new covenant passage. We're going to get references to the spirit and the heart of flesh, and you know, turn you know from the heart of stone. Okay, and when we when we went through Ezekiel, we we went through again the new covenant language here. But you should be thinking about the coming of the spirit and Pentecost and the gathering, you know, from the nations and all that. So let me just return here. He says. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses, and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the tree, fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations, you know, so on and so forth. So it's this, it's this healing of the exile, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, the new covenant. This is what Ezekiel 36 is talking about. Now, if you, let's go back to John 3. One, there's a common view that says that since Ezekiel 36 mentions water and the Spirit, that John 3 must be drawing on Ezekiel 36. So Foster writes this. He says, where water and Spirit come together so forcefully in this passage, the, the first to signify cleansing from impurity, and the second to depict the transformation of heart that will enable people to follow God wholly. Again, this is, again, the argument that, that these two things mentioned together, we have cleansing, we have transformation of the heart. This is supported, he goes on, by the expectation that Nicodemus should know this. Verse 10, you know, how, how can you be a teacher of Israel and not know this? So this indicates that there is an Old Testament antecedent to what Jesus is talking about. So the kingdom language of John 3, 5 places the passage within the eschatological orbit of Ezekiel 36. Again, this is how the argument goes. The water typically refers to cleansing in the Old Testament, particularly where it appears in conjunction with the Spirit. Okay? And so, again, this is how the, the argument is built, is what he's saying. He says, nevertheless... This view is not without difficulties. First, some of the key concepts in John 3 are absent from Ezekiel, Ezekiel 36. Most significantly, the idea of birth. And you, don't, you don't have that in Ezekiel 36. While key concepts in Ezekiel 36, such as the heart, are absent in John 3. Secondly, these gifts in Ezekiel are given with the kingdom not as a precursor to it or as a condition for reception of those gifts. And, and again, I think, I think the latter point is the most important because in John 3, 5, 
being born of the, of, of the water and, and the spirit. These are conditions, except you have these things, you're not going to be in the kingdom of God. Whereas in Ezekiel 36, it's kind of like a package that's just rolled up and, and given. You know, it, it's, it's the fulfillment of a promise. It's given to the exiles, okay, to, to Israel in exile. So he, he's saying, again, that there's some significant disconnects here. And I would add one other problem with the Ezekiel 36 view. It's clear from Ezekiel 36, the preceding verses, verses 21 through 24, which we read, that the imagery here is Pentecost. Okay, so how could Jesus be telling Nicodemus that he must be born of the Spirit when Jesus knew the Spirit wasn't going to come for a while? And he hasn't even really talked about it. You know, we have a chronological disconnect. So th- this view would seem to equate, you know, salvation with the coming of the Spirit, but it, but but it's not. You know, that that's not even what 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 Pentecost is doing. Is the Spirit shows up, but the, the you know the apostles they still have to preach. They preach with other tongues, and people have to believe. I mean, just because the Spirit shows up doesn't mean that there's salvation. So again, there's, you know, you you can't take the Ezekiel thirty six language and go back to John three five and say that baptism you know, or, or odd or still physical birth has a regenerative effect. And it, I hope you can see how, how the thinking and the use of these analogies and ideas really gets muddled. It really creates a muddled situation, both for not only verse five in John chapter three, but the wider concepts of baptism and salvation and, you know, the exile and, and all this stuff. It just, These things sort of look like they might work together, but when you really probe them, they don't, (laughs) is is his point. Um, Salvation in John chapter 3 is in Jesus. I mean, that's what John 3.16 says. It isn't in baptism. It isn't in national Israel. It isn't in the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost. It isn't, you know, these things. It's Jesus himself. So, again, the since Ezekiel 36 seems to quite clearly point to Pentecost and it doesn't point to the work of Jesus on the cross specifically, we have a bit of a disconnect saying that Ezekiel 36 is the guide for how we should read John chapter three. So again, you know what Foster does and and again, I'm just summarizing as he goes through again, some of the, these, these problems. And then he, he starts talking about, well, what might be a better choice? You know, and then he, he drifts over to the, to the Exodus imagery and he writes this. Little has been made of the Exodus as the background for this passage and the implications this might have for understanding verse 5. Despite the prevalence of Exodus typology in John's gospel and the recognition of parallels between the fourth gospel and the book of Exodus. Beasley Murray, who's a New Testament scholar, notes that, quote, a great deal of the Old Testament language employed in the Gospel of John is bound up with the concept of Jesus as the one greater than Moses, who achieved the redemption anticipated in the second Exodus, unquote. So Foster continues, in terms of our passage, while the Exodus typology is explicit in John 3.14, let's just go back there just so you remember the verse. John 3.14 says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, okay, it's a, it's a direct allusion to, to Moses, okay, during the, you know, the, the exodus in the wilderness, you know, going through the wilderness and all that. 
So he's saying, well, the Exodus typology is explicit in 314, only Solon, who's another scholar, as long ago as 1950, only this guy has noted the significance of the Exodus as background for the Nicodemus discourse as a whole. And this possibility has not been developed, nor have its implications for the meaning of John 3, 5 explored. So basically he says, this is what we're going to do. This is, this is my job now. I, you know, he's, I, we're going we're to drill down into this and see if it's coherent or not. So his points of evidence for an Exodus context to John 3, you know, he, he goes through these, you know, through, through several of them, again, just in, in brief, you know, the briefest way possible here. He says, the first thing we need to look at is that the Nicodemus scene, you know, this, this conversation takes place during the Passover. And we get that from the prior chapter, John chapter 2, and verse 23, um, you know, which sets up John chapter 3. And I'll read it. Now, when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus a ruler of the Jews. You know, it, you, know you go right into, into chapter three. So the context for the discussion is the Passover. And that's obvious Exodus imagery there, if there ever was any. Second, Foster says, water and spirit in verse five are found earlier in the gospel of John in connection with John's baptism. Okay. So let's go back to John one. And this is going to be verse... 31. Let's go back to verse 29. The next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, this is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Here's verse 31. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I come baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove. And it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the son of God. So in John chapter one, Foster's point is that, you know, we get these two things mixed there. You know, we get water and the spirit mixed, you know, just a couple chapters earlier. And he says, what's really interesting is, is this, where, where this happens is at the scene of Jesus' baptism. And if you remember, those of you who have read Unseen Realm, we actually talk about this in Unseen Realm, the, the, the baptism scene, because one of the passages, the Old Testament passages that is used in this baptism scene is Isaiah 40, Isaiah 40, verse 3, uh, especially. Um, and I'm, I'm just going to read you, you know, some of the, some of the content from unseen realm about this, just so that it comes back into your head. I wrote this. I said, we've all read about Jesus baptism before, perhaps dozens of times, but we have likely missed the context for it. John's gospel, John 1, 19 through 23 and 29 through 31, set it up this way. Verse 19. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem so that they could ask him, who are you? And he confessed and he did not deny and confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. 
Then they said to him, who are you? So that we can give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And here's, here's where John quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Just as the prophet Isaiah said. Well, on the next day, this is verse 29 now, he saw Jesus coming to him and said, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I mean, the, So Isaiah 40, verse 3 is the context for this baptism scene. And what's startling, continuing with Unseen Realm again, what's startling is the passage cited by John the Baptist. He identifies himself with the anonymous voice of Isaiah 40, verse 3, that heralded the coming of Yahweh back in Isaiah 40. The significance is obscured in English translations. And then I, I start talking in Unseen Realm about the plural imperatives and it's the divine council and all that stuff. So we're going to, I'll skip that and go to the next page where I wrote this. The description of the baptism of Jesus added to the unfolding drama for those who knew that they were what they were reading. Mark's account of the baptism provides some key insights that connect to the Old Testament worldview we've been tracking. Here's Mark 1, 9 through 11. And it happened that in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. And immediately as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens being split apart and the spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. There are two items in this passage whose importance is not conveyed in English translations. First, Mark's note that the heavens were split apart is significant. The Greek lemma is schizo. Mark's choice of the term in connection with the water baptism of Jesus has drawn the attention of scholars because of the use of schizo in the Septuagint the Greek translation of the Old Testament used by Jesus and the apostles. Not coincidentally, schizo is the verb used in Exodus 14.21 to describe the miraculous parting of the sea. And let me just break into myself here, break into, you know, hold off on the rest of the, the material from Unseen Realm. Do you recall what it was that parted the sea? I mean, you know, this is... This is something we've seen, you know, how many times on TV, okay? You know, the, with the cartoon version and the animated version and the Charlton Heston version, okay? What was it that parted the sea? Okay, let's go to Exodus 15.10. And it's, it's a little detail that often gets missed. This is the song of Moses after they cross the Red Sea. And it says, you blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. And it says, it uses the same language in Exodus 14, 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night. Bible trivia question. What is the Hebrew word for wind? Ruach. It's the same word as spirit. Ruach. Okay, the Ruach Elohim, the spirit of God. Ruach is spirit, breath, wind. And it's the same in the New Testament in Greek as well with pneuma. Again, so the language here of both the splitting of the water and the spirit, the wind, I mean, it, 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 it can actually, you can actually say it was, it was drawn from the Exodus story. Back to Unseen Realm. I wrote, think back to our discussion of the Exodus event. The deliverance from Egypt was a victory over hostile gods. In Exodus 15, 11, Moses asked the rhetorical question, who is like Yahweh among the gods? The answer was obvious. No one. The Exodus, Exodus event was a release from exile. Yahweh brought his people out of Egypt to reconstitute them as a nation and reestablish his Edenic kingdom rule on earth. 
Mark wants readers to see that a new Exodus event is happening. The kingdom of God is back. And this time, it will not fail because it's being led by the visible Yahweh, now incarnate as Jesus of Nazareth. So, you know, the, the conversation with Nicodemus, you know, isn't going to be that far removed, you know, from the baptism, which, you know, sort of makes Jesus a public figure because of what John says. Hey, there's the Lamb of God. Go follow him. And, you know, all that. So, again, there's there's this this new Exodus idea that, it, you know, Jesus is not only the prophet like unto Moses, who is superior to Moses. Okay. He has also come through the waters and the spirit, again, present there at the waters, marks him as the son of God, who is going to, again, bring salvation. So what Foster's, you know, angling for here in this, in this, his second argument for an Exodus context is, you know, if you're really thinking of Exodus, this kind of makes sense. It kind of makes sense, like the, the way Jesus would not only be described in these scenes, but when, it, when you get to John 3 and Jesus references the water and the spirit, it's quite conceivable, whether even if you, if you know the Exodus story in Hebrew or Greek, that you would hear, you know, the reference to water and spirit and think of the Exodus, because that's where the vocabulary also comes from. His third argument is that Moses and the wilderness experience are explicitly mentioned in the passage. We already read that, Exodus 3.14. It's the, the serpent, you know, as the serpent is lifted up, as Moses lifts the serpent up. Fourth, he says this parallel fits with the broader reading of the Gospel of John as highlighting and utilizing a mosaic typology from Exodus and Deuteronomy. Now, there are a few other odds and ends he throws in here. He says there is a repeated reference to signs in John. John 2.18, John 2.23, uh, John 3.2, John 6. You know, there's a lot of this sign stuff going on, which is explicitly linked to the Exodus through the association you know, of Moses doing signs. And if you look at um, you know, 2.23, let's go to John 2.23 real quickly here. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs. Did, did you catch that? It's a reference to Passover combined with a reference to signs. Jesus doing miraculous things, and then we have a Passover, just like who? Oh, that guy Moses. Moses, you know, had been God's instrument, you know, with the plagues, you know, lots of powerful signs and wonders there, and then we get the Passover. So again, if if this story is in your head, there are these natural links again, that, that are, are sort of going to inform how you're reading John 3. He also, you know, Foster also says he finds it interesting that the scene with Nicodemus occurs at night. That's John 3, 2. And he writes this, while commentators frequently link this reference to night to the Johannine theme of darkness, the Greek, Greek word there is skotia. The use of nugs here, the word for night, it's a different word, makes this link somewhat tenuous. You know, if, if let me just stop there. Foster's point here is that, look, if, if this was about John's familiar light versus darkness talk, he would have used the word for darkness. He would have used scotia like he does everywhere else, but he doesn't use that here. He uses nukes, which is the word for night. And Foster continues, nukes has significance within the Exodus account where the plague of the firstborn was unleashed at midnight, Exodus 11.4. In the Septuagint, nukes is found eight times 
eight times in Exodus 11 and 12, including once in each of the climactic verses narrating the death of the firstborn and the departure, the Exodus, from Egypt. That's Exodus 12, 29 through 31. It's also used twice in verse 42, which speaks of the Passover festival at night. Further, the language of birth is connected with the Exodus by the proleptic. Proleptic is a, is a term that means you know, looking ahead. It's connected with the Exodus by the proleptic designation of Israel as God's firstborn. Exodus 4, 22 through 23. And the death of the firstborn during the first Passover. So, again, you, you, just, just that last point. He's saying... We got this night talk, and then he throws in this other thing about the birth. Again, he, again, he thinks that, that it's significant that you get Israel referred to as God's firstborn in Exodus 4, and then the firstborn of Pharaoh and the other Egyptians is going to die during the Passover, which is at night. And of course, that's when they also leave Egypt. That would be the Exodus. So again, Foster's you know, sort of pulling all these, these little strings, these little, little threads together. And saying, you know, I think that the Exodus tradition is probably a better backdrop to read John 3. And then he, he goes into, okay, well, how would this work? I mean, what, what, how, what does it help us with? So he writes this. It is the light that the Exodus background can shed on the much debated expression in verse 5, born of water and spirit, that I consider in detail here. My suggestion is that born of water references the birth of the nation at the Exodus, and that to be, quote, born of water is synonymous with being an Israelite. By demanding that Nicodemus be born of water and the Spirit, Jesus is pointing to the inadequacy of the birth that Nicodemus and the Jewish people he represents have experienced for participation in the kingdom. In other words, it's not enough to be an Israelite. Being an Israelite doesn't guarantee you anything, especially since I'm here. You're going to have to believe you and your fellow Israelites, if they ever want to see the kingdom of God, they cannot trust of this status they have of being an Israelite, of being born through water, of being born a people at the Exodus. That is not sufficient. Being an Israelite doesn't cut it. I'm here now. You must be born again, born from above, born of the Spirit. You know, Foster says the coming age requires a Jew such as Nicodemus to be, quote, born of the Spirit or born again, verse 3. In the coming age, the people of God will be reconstituted around not Israel, but around the Messiah. And he must be reborn into a new humanity, a new people of God, by the Spirit. The proposal that Israel was, quote, born of water at the Exodus finds support from the common designation of Israel as the child of God in the Old Testament, especially in the context of the Exodus. In Exodus, Yahweh refers to Israel as his firstborn, instructing Moses to say to Pharaoh, quote, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. I said to you, let my son go that he may worship me, but you refused to let him go. Now I will kill your firstborn son. It's Exodus 4, 22 and 23. 
This proleptic designation of Israel as God's firstborn anticipates the events described in Exodus 12, where the exodus from Egypt is narrated. In Deuteronomy 32.6, figures we got back to Deuteronomy 32 again, God is designated father, and by implication, Israel is God's son. While in verse 18, after the experience of Israel in the wilderness is described, you know, we get, again, you get more of this language, you know, so on and so forth. I'm not going to, you know, read all of it. So he says, look, born of water refers to being an Israelite. It's not sufficient. Okay. You, to see the kingdom of God, you have to have, yeah, I mean, you're a Jew. Okay. So this is where you start. You're a member of Israel. That's good because Israel is people of God, descendants of Abraham. You know, you, you know who the true God is. You worship the true God. You know, all this is good stuff. You were, you were chosen, created really after the disinheritance at Babel. I mean, we, we got it. You know, this is important, but it is inadequate. When the Messiah has come, you must embrace the Messiah. You can't reject the Messiah and, and claim that you deserve to be in the kingdom of God, you know, the, to have everlasting life with God just because you're an Israelite. Jesus' answer to that is, no. No, that's not how this works. Now that the new age has dawned, the Messiah is here. You have to shift your understanding here. You must embrace me as the Messiah. If you don't, you cannot rely on just being an Israelite. Not going to cut it. So then Foster, lastly, he goes to the born of the spirit, you know, idea. And he says, you know, this is needed now since we have the dawning of the new age of the Messiah. And he goes back to John 1 to talk about this. I think you'll find this interesting. He writes, in addition to the Exodus background supporting connecting born of water with the Exodus, the notion of birth has all already been introduced in the prologue, John chapter 1, where the shift in the locus of salvation is also in view. He has, he has the same things in view in, in John chapter 1. You know, being in Israel is not sufficient. In John 1.11, the Jewish rejection of the Messiah is anticipated. Jesus came to his own but his own did not receive him. Instead, quote, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right, the authority, to become the children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. It's John 1, 12 and 13. Israel has enjoyed the unique privilege of being children of God, but this privilege now belongs not to Israel, but to all those who believe in Jesus' name. As Keener states, and he's going to quote Keener, the will of the flesh in verse 13, quote, probably also reflects the context contrast between children born from God and genetic Israel. He contrasts verse 12 to verse 11, whom some early Christians called Israel according to the flesh. Verse 13 concludes that children of God are are not those born of flesh, that is national Israel. National Israel is not who the children of God are. The children of God are those born of God, those who believe in Jesus, those who believe on his name. And so what, what Foster is saying here is, look, 
if you just think about what you're reading in John 1, it's the same thing in John 3. It's not sufficient to be an Israelite. Okay, you must embrace the Messiah. And so, you know, he, the rest of his article, I'm not going to go through you know, all of the details, but he, he says, you know, this, this really helps explain a few things. You know, it explains why Nicodemus should have known. You should have known this. I mean, what, what bigger, more central tradition is there to the Jew than the Exodus? You know, I mean, there, there just can't be anything bigger. Foster says, Jesus' expectation that Nicodemus should know these things has sent some to the Old Testament in search of passages that speak of regeneration. Okay, most often, you know, Ezekiel 36. But he's saying, look, that's not what's going on here. It's not what's going on here. What's going on here is what's going on in John 1, because that's where the spirit and the baptism are connected as well. You know, it's 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 dipping into the into the vocabulary through the Septuagint of the Exodus story. This provides not only a better explanation, but it it covers very well the, the this this charge of Jesus to Nicodemus that you should know this. Again, there is no bigger you know tradition in Israel. You know, Foster says it also again really hits on why John three sixteen would say what it does. <laughs> You know, if John 3.16 makes sense in light of, you know, John chapter 1, which we just saw, but if Jesus is expanding entry into the kingdom of God to, quote, the world, then it really makes good sense to read John 3.5 as saying, you must be, yeah, born of water, okay, you know, you know, you're an Israelite, got it. That's where we begin. But if you stay there, if that is your point of orientation for everlasting life, it's inadequate. Because salvation is not just for the Israelite. It's for the world. The rest of the world, they're not Israelites. So what Foster's suggesting here is, let's take a look at John 3.16. Like everybody knows this verse. And think about what it really meant to Nicodemus to hear that. And then think about John 3, 5 in light of that. Again, this is the point, especially with with John 3, 16, you know, this this transition to salvation for the whole world, that I think what, what Foster's trying to argue for here makes the most sense. Because it's true. It's true. If God sent his son so that everyone, you know, who believes in him, everyone, You know, for God so loved the world, not just Israel, the world, and everyone who believes on him, his son, will have everlasting life. If that's, if that's true, then yeah, being an Israelite is not that. Being an Israelite is not sufficient. It is not adequate because salvation now is focused upon, funneled through, again, whatever language you want to use here, Jesus. So I I think I think he really has, I mean, I'm just throwing it out there. This is one of those episodes where I'm just going to throw this out and just tell you, you know, I, I find what he's doing here in this article. And again, if you, if you're a newsletter subscriber, you can get the whole article and read it. I find what he's doing here very persuasive because it does make sense of John three, five, when, whereas the other views just, they, there's, they just have problems. They all have problems. 
And we didn't even get into the wacky ones. I mean, the semen one's kind of wacky. Okay. You know, like, like he says, that's, you know, like, I can't remember what Foster's words were, but like really, oh, he, he called it obscure. Yeah. Well, you, you could call it wacky too. Um, it, it makes sense of, of, of that language in that verse, but it, it also makes sense in the context of John 1. It makes sense with the vocabulary usage, hooking back into the Exodus. It makes sense of John 3.16. Again, I, I find what he's doing here pretty persuasive. And so I wanted to, to throw this out because we're going to do more episodes like this where we're going to look at Old Testament passages and they're all not going to go back to the Exodus, but we're, we're trying to do we're trying to do episodes that, hey, you're reading this in the New Testament. Let's think about the Old Testament because that can really, you know, again, sort of part the clouds uh, in many respects if we think carefully about what might be going on in the Old, in the New Testament passage, especially, you know, when the Septuagint's referenced and you get, you know, sort of these groupings, these collective terms, and they all sort of wind up at one place, in this case, the Exodus. I mean, that, that's very helpful. Again, so we're going to do more of these episodes that that help us read the New Testament better in light of the Old Testament. And I wanted to begin here because everybody knows this passage. Everybody knows John 3.16. But again, have you ever thought about how Nicodemus would have parsed it, especially, again, with this angle of the Exodus? So I'm hoping, again, that this you, you find this interesting. You know, uh, again, I find it persuasive. It's up to you. It just gives you good good stuff to think about. You know, in the text, this is what we're here for, to try to read the text, you know, in, in light of its own its own context, which New Testament context is going to be the Old Testament. You know, and, and it, it has its own context, too. So, again, I, I think this is just, it was just a really fascinating article and wanted to share it with you in this episode. Yeah, Mike, I'm excited. We need to um, maybe call this the Connecting the Dot series or something, because... Uh, <laughs> yeah, we give it a I name. Mean, I mean, seriously, because... Yeah, because uh, we had Psalm 91. And we had the binding and loosing, and yeah. I'm trying to remember whether we had one other one in there too. But yeah, yeah, maybe we could. Uh, yeah, that's yeah, a, yeah. We, yeah. Loosely somehow, I need to tag that <laughs> right. or something with that. But now that's yeah. good. That's good. I'm excited about that because uh, we just don't do that. We don't read the New Testament, much less able to pick out one verse and connect it back mm-hmm. to the Old Testament. I mean, it, we just it's just unless you're tracking on that. You're just not going to read it that way. You're not going to do that. Right. So right. We, we definitely need someone like you to point it out and then uh, connect it because uh, it's good stuff. Yeah. It's good stuff to think about. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, we'll get people out on that. And uh, with that, I want to thank everybody for listening to the Naked Bible Podcast. God bless. Thanks for listening to the Naked Bible Podcast. To support this podcast, visit www.nakedbibleblog.com. To learn more about Dr. Heiser's other websites and blogs, go to www.drmsh.com.